The sermon begins in 1854 in London, where there was an outbreak of cholera in the Soho district of the city of London. Cholera was at the time relatively new to Europe and doctors at the time were trying hard to figure out how to treat it. Not treat it individually, that was pretty straightforward, lots and lots of fluids and supportive care, but how to treat the community affected, how to lower transmission rates to halt or slow down an epidemic. At the time, there were two primary theories for how uh, cholera and other pandemics spread. The first and most popular was that decaying organic matter let off miasma, Greek for pollution, that caused infections ranging from cholera to the plague as it spread at night. And if you think about it, this theory actually makes intuitive sense. It identifies outbreaks in a particular neighborhood as related, and cleaning was thought to cut down on miasma. So people would go into neighborhoods and, and clean, clean them and bleach them, and it would cut down on infection rates. But by the time of the 1854 cholera outbreak in London, the germ theory of disease had, had just begun to come into fashion. A doctor named John Snow, it's his actual name, he knew nothing at the start, but then knew more. That was all the Game of Thrones fans here that just <laughs> laughed. But John Snow had spent several years tracking the spread of cholera in previous outbreaks and had started to think that rather than miasma, there was something going on with water. And so when the 1854 outbreak began, it, it was in Dr. Snow's own neighborhood of Soho. And being a relatively data-oriented doctor, he took out a map of the neighborhood and started putting dots wherever cholera infections showed up. And the results were striking. Right in the middle of the outbreak was the Broad Street Pump, a public water supply that homes in the neighborhood all used pretty much daily. And that was highly suggestive. We would say statistically it was highly correlated. But there were two outliers on the map. The first was an area in the middle of Soho, just a block from the Broad Street Pump, that had no infections. And if miasma was to blame, if it was, if it was <coughs> decaying organic matter letting off some kind of toxic gas, it had remarkably avoided this one area. On investigation, it turned out that the area of no infections was a brewery <laughs> where workers were paid as a job perk in free beer all day. <laughs> and so being rational actors, none of them had used water from the Broad Street pump. The, the clincher to this whole story was a cholera case that was not in Soho. In the midst of the outbreak centered directly on Broad Street, there was one case of cholera several neighborhoods over. And when Dr. Snow looked into it and interviewed folks around this house, he found out that it was the home of a woman who used to live near Broad Street 
and who, claiming the Broad Street pump was the finest water in London, had paid for water to be delivered every day from the Broad Street pump to her home. Snow presented his findings to public health authorities who removed the handle of the Broad Street pump, and the outbreak ended in a matter of days. Several months later, uh, a, uh, a pastor in Soho attempted to demonstrate that Snow's theory that the Broad Street pump was uh, transmitting cholera was wrong. He tried to show that it was caused by divine intervention, and he inadvertently turned up evidence of, of who the initial patient was and how it spread. That's another story, though. But why start a sermon there? You know, first, Snow's research and response to the Broad Street cholera epidemic is the founding moment of epidemiology, a field that at least some of us are feeling like we're becoming amateur experts on quickly these days. It's also a reminder to me that as frightening as and unknown as epidemics are, they are not themselves immune to reason and treatment. Cholera is frightening, and yet the best way to treat it turned out to be breaking off the handle of a pump. COVID-19 is frightening. And the most effective responses seem to be the most basic, hand washing to slow down transmissions, extra care if you get sick, replacing handshakes and hugs with bows, elbow bumps, the Vulcan salute, But the other reason to talk about this in a sermon is that the Broad Street Pump is one of the clearest examples of the wisdom of data. We're talking about wisdom all of the month of March, where it comes from, how we get it, how we pay attention to the wisdom around us. Last week, we talked about the wisdom of story, how one single story contains multitudes of interpretations, of meaning and questions. And this week we zoom out because data is nothing but compiled stories. Story after story after story forming collective wisdom. The danger of a single story that we talked about last week is using it to universalize an experience that is not universal to take a story that says something important about a particular people, time, place, like Thornton Wilder's Our Town, and extrapolate from it meaning and lessons that are applicable in the same way to every person, every time, and every place. Data is nothing other than stories. And so what data allows is us to avoid that fallacy of universalizing the single story, and it allows us to check, to compare it to many stories at once, and say, what is the wisdom that we all have? And if there's a danger in data, equivalent to the danger of a single story, it is in forgetting this most basic fact. Each data set is met made up of real people and real stories. So every dot on Dr. Snow's map was a story. 
Every dot on Dr. Snow's map was a tragedy. This is important to think about, to change the topic. As we think about the relationship between data and the life of a church, the religious life, the community that we share here together, because data never replaces the relational work that is central to the work of the church, the moments where we listen to each other's stories deeply, the times when we tell our own. Our first principle does not say every collection of people has worth, dignity, and wisdom. It says each person has inherent worth and dignity, each individual. And there is wisdom in being able to zoom out a little bit and talk about the wisdom that data brings us. So here's a recent example from the life of this congregation. About a year ago, we started looking at our attendance data from the last 50 years. At the time, we had 200 chairs in this sanctuary. And the literature on church size says that churches are at capacity when your weekly attendance is 80% of the number of chairs that you have. That would be 160 people if you do that math. And since 1961, when this building was built, the average Sunday morning attendance has been between 150 and 170 every single year for 60 years. And so throughout the summer and the fall of 2019, we talked about what it might mean that we are at capacity, that one of the reasons that that number is so stable is that there wasn't physical space for another 30 people to be here on Sunday morning. And so on January 12th of this year, responding to that data and those trends, we moved to two services on Sunday morning and took 50 chairs out of the sanctuary. So we aren't at the end of 2020 yet. So I can't tell you what our average weekly attendance over the year is. I can't quite compare apples to apples right now. But here's what I can tell you. In December, if you take out Christmas Eve, our monthly attendance was 635. Overall in 2019, it was about 689. In January, our first month with two services, we had 808 people attend services. In February, that number was 890. In the last two months, our monthly religious education attendance was 120 and 128, compared to an average of 78 in 2019. I could have told you anecdotally that it has, it has seemed like there are a lot of people coming out on Sunday morning. I have seen a lot of white name tags. I could tell you that last week at the 11 o'clock service, I had to ask folks to move into the center of their rows to make room for people coming in a few minutes late to the service. But what those numbers allow is for us to quantify that, to say, yeah, there, there does seem to be more demand for liberal worship in Lincoln than we have been offering. And that's getting responded to. We collect this information so that we can better respond to the needs of the community. And I'm pretty confident in saying now that the analysis that we did a year ago, that we needed to be doing more worship, that there was more need for it, 
appears to have been correct. Why does this matter, though? It goes back to the danger of a single story because we are primed as humans to universalize anecdote. One of the things that we are best at. We remember the last thing we see and we interpret the broader world based on it. When somebody compliments a sermon I give, regardless of how many things went wrong on that Sunday, I feel like I am the next William Jennings Bryan. <laughs> and when somebody gives me a, ter a, a dirty look in the grocery store as Ailish has a meltdown over cookies, I feel like a terrible parent. And the reality is that I am neither a world-class orator or a catastrophically bad parent. But without the capacity to step back and look at the whole picture rather than one story, humans are particularly bad at understanding reality. We are also, as humans, primed to respond to novel stimuli, unusual things that come up in our life. Dangers and opportunities that are outside of our everyday experience take over big, big parts of our inner monologue. So far, across the entire world, 3,500 people have died of the COVID-19 virus, the COVID-19 disease. In 2012, the last year there is data available, the WHO estimated that 1.25 million people died in motor vehicle accidents. The relative risk of those two things is not even remotely comparable. And yet I'm guessing most of the people in this room got into a car or a bus to come here this morning without thinking about it. So taking the same phenomenon and making it positive, we can think about lottery tickets and retirement accounts. How much time, how much thought, how much hope goes into buying $100 of lottery tickets versus $100 in municipal bonds? We respond to novel stimuli. Municipal bonds are not for most of us <laughs> exciting, stimulating things to think about investing in. Wait, it's fair to ask. I understand that this is a TED talk, but how does this relate to Unitarian Universalism? What's the religious component of data analysis? That's a sentence that I've wanted to write since I was in grad school. <laughs> what is the religious component of data analysis? Unitarian Universalism claims six sources for our faith. We talked about these for much of, of last summer. And in reality, there are as many sources of inspiration as there are people in our congregations. But as a movement, as the Unitarian Universalist Association, our bylaws say that there are six strands of wisdom that are central to our history and our current expression. And the fifth source, named by Unitarian Universalism, is of humanist teachings, which counsel us to heed the guidance of reason and the results of science and warn us against idolatries of the mind and spirit. 
Last summer, Charlie Ahern took on a topic, this topic for a whole sermon. And while we don't seem to have that sermon up as a podcast yet, I bet he wouldn't mind talking about it if you ask him. So I get stuck at the use of idolatry in the fifth source. It feels like a strange thing to put into Unitarian Universalism because we are a tradition of heretics, if such a thing is possible. In every generation that I know of, theological opponents of Unitarians and Universalists have thrown down that specific word in condemnation. It's a word that conjures up biblical images, golden calves and overturned tables in the temple. But fundamentally, idolatry is about mistaking things of little importance for that of ultimate meaning. It is getting distracted. So taking our eye off the ball and missing the most important part of life because something shiny was over there. Idolatry is about giving value and meaning to something that does not need it. Idolatry is getting distracted. And so we might think about the idolatries of mind and spirit that the use of reason counsels us against as novel stimuli. That might look like discounting the evidence of large-scale change. WHO reports on the coronavirus or IPCC reports on climate change in favor of anecdote, a hunch that the mortality rate is much lower than reported or bringing a snowball into the Capitol building. Idolatry is getting distracted by anecdote. The wisdom of data gathered, analyzed, and reported guards us from these idolatries. One last piece. The story we started with of Dr. Snow and the Broad Street cholera outbreak is shocking in part because of how clear it is. A single pump and data that was unambiguous. Most data are not like that. Mark Twain was fond of saying that there were three kinds of lies in the world. There are lies, damned lies, and statistics. And it's true. A fair amount of my pre-ministry life was spent running regression analyses on large bits of data. And you can use the same underlying data set to tell vastly different stories. So to take one example, if you run enough tests on a data set, you can always find false positives. Let's say you're testing the relationship between jelly beans and acne. Do jelly beans cause acne? You run your first regression, and it says, no, of course jelly beans don't cause acne. That's absurd. But the data set will tell you that there is a 5% chance that it's wrong. You then say, well, maybe it's one specific color of jelly beans, so I'm going to test each of the 20 colors of jelly beans to see if red jelly beans cause acne, if blue jelly beans cause acne, if orange jelly beans cause acne, if green, wait, green jelly beans cause acne. If every test that you run has a 5% chance of being a false positive or a false negative, if you run 20 tests, you will get a false positive or false negative. This 
so. Data is not, data and data analysis are not solely the end of wisdom. And that's where we'll pick up next time I preach from this pulpit. Because any source of wisdom, if it is truly wise, must be tempered by humility. To understand the limits of our knowledge and to be able to live in the world within those limits, that is wisdom. So more on that in a few weeks. And blessed be.